Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. Jim Cook, the beer pioneer and force behind Samuel Adams, is here to talk about Boston Lager Remastered, as well as business trends and failures. And we'll get into it all in a moment. But first, please go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can find original articles, reviews, news, insights, and podcasts. You can listen to shows like Beer Travelers, Brewer to Brewer, and the All About Beer podcast hosted by M. Souter and Dom Tess. And you can do all that simply by searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all of the work we do is supported by you. You can go visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to help keep the content fresh. And a few bucks goes a long way to fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. And if you'd like to learn more about advertising on this show, please email info at allaboutbeer.com. If you are a smoked beer fan, and of course you are, please go check out This Week in Rout Beer. You can search for the Facebook group or follow on Instagram and Twitter at TWRoutBeer. And if you listen to our 2023 episode, please let me know what you thought. 2023 is looking to be an interesting year for legacy brewers in the U.S. We're seeing closures and contractions, as well as changes to beloved brands. Of course, the most noted right now is that New Belgium announced that it completely reformulated Fat Tire, turning it into something that bears no resemblance to the amber ale that raised and delighted a generation. The changes, or remastered version of Boston Lager that Samuel Adams announced earlier this year, are not as drastic, but they're important and do have an impact on what's poured into the glass. It's impossible to imagine the modern American beer landscape without Boston Lager. When the Boston Beer Company launched in 1984, Jim Cook and co-founder Rhonda Coleman were hand-selling samples to accounts all over the city. The beer, based in part by a Cook family recipe and further developed by Joseph Oades, a brewing scientist who is credited as the inventor of light beer, was seen as an alternative to the macro offerings of the early 1980s. The beer won early accolades at the Great American Beer Festival in both the consumer preference polls and the formal judging. Top honors gave it bragging rights as the best beer in America, something that the brewery still uses in the beer's marketing nearly 40 years later. Boston beer has grown. Brands like Angry Orchard Hard Cider, Twisted Tea, Truly Hard Seltzer, and Dogfish Head are now all part of the company. And Samuel Adams has released hundreds of beers, some that landed well with consumers and others that faded quickly. Boston Lager has endured. On draft, in bottles and cans, and in every variety pack the brewery releases, that familiar lager is ever-present. But as consumer preferences change and technologies advance, and as brewers strive for a better version of their vision, the beer has evolved. Cook shares insights on how hop harvest helped evolve the beer and how historic processes are now being used to help the lager taste smoother. If it's been a while since you last had a Boston lager, now is a good time to give it a fresh try. Jim spoke to me from Massachusetts. Here's our conversation. In thinking about this conversation with you, I've been going back on Boston beer over the years. And what I was struck with, and we had a conversation about this uh, back in October when I saw you in Denver for the Great American Beer Festival, but um, it's fashionable now or important or necessary now for brewers to be thinking beyond beer, beyond just offering a beer product. And we're seeing it with RTD cocktails. We're seeing it with hard seltzers. We're seeing it with brewers getting into coffee. Um, but 
from a very early point in the company's founding and creation, you were trying different things and you were putting different things out there. And I, and I wonder, I know you caught flack for it at various points, but I wonder if it has helped shape the company as to where you are now and how you feel about having such a a, a diverse portfolio um, with seltzer, with hard tea, with uh, cider. Um, I know you've tried some other stuff. Dogfish Head now has RTDs. Um, Has that been to the long run beneficial nature of the company? And John, should I repeat the question? No, no, you don't have to do that. Okay, got it. All right. Um, Yes, I think it has been beneficial. Um, And to me, uh, it's one of the things I've learned, it's hard to put uh, fences around creativity and say, well, we're going to be creative and uh, let our imaginations go and get excited about doing cool new things that nobody's done, that may be good ideas, maybe bad ideas, but they're going to be fun. It's really hard to fence that in. And I've never really tried. Uh, we started with Samuel Adams Boston Lager, obviously one of the uh, foundational beers of, of the craft brewing movement. And yeah. one of its attributes was, uh, at, at, at the time, you know, revolutionary uh, and striking. And that attribute was uh, it was the first American beer to actually pass the Reinheitsgebot and be imported into Germany. Because at that time, uh, a, a Reinheitsgebot compliant beer in the United States was a, a, a very, very rare thing. Um, and we soon, you know, grew beyond those constraints. And my uh, friend, Sam Calgione, really uh, put it beautifully for me. He said, because uh, he had a whole different perspective on the Reinheitsgebot. That's the, yeah, he's the 180 of that. Of that yeah, he said, Jim, you know, you look at it as this great guarantor of quality and purity. I look at it as a form of artistic censorship. And of course, both, you know, if both things can be true. Uh, we're all at a point in our lives where we can actually hold two contradictory ideas in our brain and not be disturbed <laughs> by it. Uh, so we've kind of used those kinds of tensions uh, where you have two contradictory things that are true uh, to create a synthesis out of that and drive the, the company forward, uh, continuing to push boundaries and and I, I realized very early on that um, we were going to get uh, uh, we were going to get shit for doing things that uh, were different um, and often different than other craft brewers. Uh, and I, it came to me, I guess there's two things that I remember. One was being out in Portland, Oregon and talking to uh, one of the other early craft brewers and he was complaining, Jim, you're messing up the industry. You're high, you hire salespeople. Craft brewers shouldn't have to sell their beer. Hmm. You, 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 the beer should sell itself. And I'm like, well, uh, maybe that works nice in thought, Portland, but, Oregon. Yeah. But, you know, walk into an Irish bar in Boston, the beer does not sell itself, dude. Uh, and the other thing that 
kind of um, stuck with me is, you know, that taught me we're going to get people complaining was when uh, we decided to make a lambic, um, which was almost sacrilege in 1988 uh, because we did not, you know, we weren't in the lambic valley of Belgium um, as if their uh, microflora and fauna were something unique and special. They're not, by the way. Uh, and we put cranberries in it. We made a Samuel Adams cranberry lambic. And that was of cranberries. That was an, a forbidden fruit. You were supposed to have cherries, maybe raspberries, maybe, maybe peaches. But cranberries, you know, they didn't even have cranberries in Belgium. Well, that's why I used them in America. I'm not making this in Belgium. Um, so I realized that you know, we were going to have to decide, are we going to push boundaries, push the envelope, maybe do things that people were are, are thinking crap brewers shouldn't do this. Um, we just had to decide what do we want to do? What makes sense for us? And, you know, we'll, we'll take some slings and arrows from time to time over it. But at the end of the day, you know, we will help move the entire craft brewing industry forward because uh, it needs to keep moving forward. We can't just stop and say, well, we're, we're now adhering to tradition and we're going to do everything the way our great, great grandparents do kind of like the German brewers did for uh, decades. We didn't have a lot of laurels to rest on. The idea of cranberries today sounds quaint by Modern yeah. standards and and what folks are putting into beer, including your colleague uh, Sam, uh, who is no stranger to putting weird things in beer. And of course, I, I've I've had some of your beers in the past that uh, um, uh, I use an example when people say like, what, "What's some of the weirdest beers you ever had?" And uh, Burke in a bottle with the grilled beef hearts comes up uh, yes. quite a bit. That made a that made quite the impression. Um, yeah. That was yeah. a really fun day. Uh, uh, you know, our thing with, with David Burke, great New York chef, um, was he would show up at the brewery with a, a mystery ingredient, an ingredient that we didn't know beforehand. And then we would design a beer around it. And I remember the day uh, that David showed up with this big plastic bag of 40 pounds of grilled beef hearts. Okay, uh, I think they might fit well in a brown ale. That that brothy character uh, will it's probably nest really yeah. nicely in a brown ale, and which which it did. Uh, and we got to uh, the hardest part about brewing that was one of our brewers decided to download every Captain Beefheart song sure. he could find. So we had to listen to Captain Beefheart for a day. I don't quite know what's worse. Um, yikes. Uh, is there a line too far with ingredients these days, do you think? Well, everybody's pushing it. I mean, I'm sure there is. Um, but I'm sure that as soon as it's established, one of uh, our fellow craft brewers is going to cross it. I mean, you just can't put a line out there in front of craft brewers and say, don't step over this line. It's going to be done. You mentioned good ideas and bad ideas and uh, of 
and again, with with I, I, obviously Seltzer has been a good idea because it's 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 done well for the company. Tea has been uh, a, a good idea because it's done well for the company. Cider continues um, uh, to 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 sort of push things forward. Um, and then obviously on the beer side, there's been uh, beers like Utopias and um, you know, Triple Bach and 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 all of these uh, Hall of Fame beers that that excite people and I think have pushed the industry forward. Um, can you share an like a, a thought on one or two of the bad ideas that didn't pan yeah. out the way that you thought? Oh, we've had <laughs> dozens um, bad ideas. Well, I'll give you one. I thought it was a good idea. It just didn't didn't work. People didn't buy it. Um, it was a hard kombucha, okay. uh, and I'm not saying that in general is a bad idea because there's some really good producers out there. But it wasn't a good idea for us. Um, and you know, when we approach something that already exists, you know, we believe we have to make a significant improvement on it or bring a new twist to it. And with the hard kombucha, nobody was making a hard kombucha that had live probiotics and real fruit and was also, uh, you know, stable enough that the bottles wouldn't blow up. Um, and so we found a way to do that with, uh, it was a little bit complicated, but we found a way to do it. Um, and uh, we call it Tura, which is the heart of natural. Yeah. Uh, so it was T-U-R-A. Um, and we actually made it with, uh, friends up in Burlington, Vermont, uh, at what used to be the Woodchuck Cidery. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, you know, all of our brewers were terrified at bringing these live probiotics into the brewery. And we had some especially hardy ones that couldn't be killed with normal, uh, you know, brewery sanitation. Um, so we had to jump through a bunch of hoops to do it. It was delicious. It was really expensive to make because we used a lot of real fruit. So uh, it was not very profitable, but the good news is nobody bought it anyway. Hey, I, I, I just looked it up as you were talking. I didn't realize that you all were doing this and it looks like it was discontinued uh, as we were all still uh, coming to grips with the pandemic. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, so, uh, we have yeah. lots of failures, John. I, I, uh, I once had to uh, give a talk uh, actually with the Beer Business Daily and they wanted me to talk about our failures. And so I started writing them down and I think <laughs> I got to 20 and I got so depressed by that. I stopped. It, is there one that sticks with you more than others? Oh, not really. I mean, they're. I mean, there some of them that I thought should have done well. I mean, the, the hard kombucha was delicious. Yeah. Um, I really like that. Um, we've made some great beers. I, I loved our cream stout that we oh, discontinued. Yeah. Black lager was one of my favorites um, that we discontinued. Uh, Golden Pilsner, Noble Pils. Noble uh, Pills. That was uh, that was a wedding beer, wasn't it? For my daughter's wedding, John. You have a really good memory. Oh yeah. Yes, and she's still happily married and has three kids, so that beer should get a lot of credit. 
but it, it it's not often credited as what makes a happy marriage. That's true. Um, but that was near and dear to my heart, and we just continued that. So we have, I mean, I, there's things we did you don't you don't even remember probably things like uh, oh Devil Mountain that probably never even got to your radar. No, um, I could. What was Devil Mountain? It was uh, one of the original California beers. Uh, and it's, uh, there's a mountain outside of San Francisco. Maybe it's Mount Diablo. Um, and I really liked it. And so we, uh, they were going out of business. So we took over, um, and made it and it was distributed. This was the early nineties through Seagram's, um, which was a big spirits company back then. And it, they lost interest in it, but we got a brewer out of it. So the brewer from Devil Mountain is still with us 20 some years later. All right. Well, that sounds like a fair trade then. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's so interesting. I, and you had the, uh, what was that? It was a great Belgian dark stout that you used to do. And you had those fancy, bo- I, the, yes. like the the brewery collection that was out. It was a trio of beers. You had a Creek, you had a yes. stout and something else that I can't remember. Yes. Oh yes. I can see it. I can too. And I, I'm, Midnight. I'm, I'm, it had a clock on it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That was a beautiful beer. Um, and it was in our barrel room collection. Right. Um, 13th so, hour. Yeah. 13th hour. That's right. That was Thank a fun, you. that was a fun beer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean that, yeah, we had a bunch of them in that set of beers. Uh, the Stony Brook red was one of my favorites and yeah. that got, uh, in a South American beer festival that got best beer, uh, best of show in the festival. And, uh-huh. Uh, and it's named after the subway stop next to our brewery That's here right. in Boston. So I think it might have been the first beer named after a subway stop. <laughs> it was beautiful beer, but you know, there, uh, that there was that time when you know, 24 ounce beers, Charlie Papazium called them dinner bottles, you know, that two people could share. Uh, there were it wasn't just us, there were some other really great beers. Um, Rob Todd made some great beers in that same genre here in New England. And of course, Tommy Arthur uh, out in California. Tommy had some really great, uh, you know, big bottle barrel aged beers. So that was a that was a, uh, a, a fun time in craft brewing when everybody uh, you know, was throwing down their barrel aged beers one after another. I I'm thinking back to what that Oregon brewer said to you. And for a long time in the realm of craft or microbrew in the early days, um, there was so much talk about love and passion and you know, not necessarily treating it like a business, which I think is why a lot of folks faltered along the way, because you do have to be looking at the bottom line. You do have to be thinking about, you know, what's best for the business, what's best for the employees, what's best for the longevity of everything. Um, when you've made these decisions to discontinue a beer, 
it, it, it's largely based on sales, correct? Yeah, we stopped making it when people stopped buying it. So That's, are there yeah. are, are there metrics that exist then of like if something hits a certain threshold, you all have to go into the conference room and bring in the guillotine? Um, well, it's even easier than that. Um, you know, beer uh, is not immortal. Uh, beer has a freshness date. So when we're taking back so much beer that uh, we're losing money, even on a variable cost basis, that's when you discontinue it. And what will sometimes happen is, you know, uh, the tanks are a certain size, so that determines your batch size. Uh, and, you know, we might have the smallest tank in a brewery might be 100 barrel tank. Well, that's 2,500 cases. And uh, it might have a shelf life of five months. So when it stops, you know, when it's selling 300 cases a month, that means you're taking back, uh, you're selling four months worth, you're selling 1,200 cases, and you're taking back 1,200 cases from the wholesaler and the retailer. That's not a hard decision. But we, we hang on to beers probably a little too long. So as, as long as, you know, we're comfortable that most of what we're selling is actually fresh, uh, we'll keep making it. But when when half of what we're selling is is already uh, stale past its freshness date, why are what what good are we doing to the beer universe? Even if it's you know like Golden Pils or uh, my favorite Noble Pils, if yeah. half of what is put in front of the consumer for purchase is past its freshness date. We're not doing them any favors. It was great beer, you know, when we made it, but it's six months later. It's not a great beer anymore. So as you started thinking about remastering Boston Lager, um, were there, I mean, there's so many breweries, there's so much choice out there these days. Were there things that were, that you were noticing number wise with Boston Lager where you said, okay, we should probably try to reintroduce this to folks or we should be, I know you're always thinking about improvements and always going there, but did consumer preference, consumer drinking habits play into the, the early conversations for Boston lager remastered? Um, well, it was really all about, um, uh, we've been making these improvements for 35 years at the time. Um, and we really, they're not things that uh, that we talk about. Some of them are pretty geeky. Some of them are maybe for an, an average craft drinker, hard to connect the dots between like, you know, the harvest time of the hops and the quality of the beer. Um, but that was one of the improvements we made is uh, re-scheduling uh, uh, how long our hops were staying uh, on the, the hop vines. It turned out that uh, the Germans for uh, centuries harvested hops when they were at their, their physical peak, when they were, their appearance was bright and green um, and they're beautiful at that moment. It turns out that you actually want to keep them on for a couple more weeks. Now they're going to start to look gray. They lose that bright green you know, shine, 
Um, they uh, sort of darken, get a little grayish, but the aromas are improving all that time when the physical appearance is deteriorating. And with hops, it's not a beauty contest. You care what the flavor and the taste and the aromas are bringing to the beer, but you can't really, it's too lengthy and complicated to explain that. And that's just an example of sure. one of the uh, you know, small improvements that we've made over the years. And we got to, uh, we were introduced to this traditional German process called bioacidification, which again is pretty geeky uh, and not that easy to understand unless you understand um, some of the, the uh, you know, water chemistry, how pH affects louder times, polyphenols, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, the, uh, the bioacidification, which is a Reinheitsgebot compliant process, uh, made a brighter, kind of smoother, easier drinking Samuel Adams Boston Lager. Not enough that anyone would really notice it without it being called out. But, you know, I could tell the difference and our brewers could tell the difference. Yeah. So uh, we thought, you know, let's let people in on this sort of secret uh, that we are always looking for ways to make Sam Adams Boston Lager a more flavorful, brighter, more balanced, smoother, overall, you know, better tasting beer. And that was the origin of, of Sam Adams remastered. Everybody knows this concept of, you know, of music being remastered. I mean, this is yes. not old Coke and new Coke. Um, okay. It's the same recipe, the same ingredients. We're not going to go back to, to Boston Lager Classic in, in six months. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. No. Uh, I'm uh, The best Boston Lager we've ever made is what we made today. And we will make a better one at some point in the future. This is I'm more of this American idea of, you know, the status quo sucks. Uh, the only reason a better the status trap, quo yeah. exists is that we haven't yet improved on it, but we will. Um, so with Boston Lager, the idea of remastered, people got that, of a classic, it's the same music, the same band, um, but some of those, uh, that hiss that you used to get with the old LPs and the occasional snap and pop, we took that out and it is bright and clean and smooth and as flawless as we can make it. I know you're calling it nerdy and I, and I agree with you, but the bioacidification um, is, is this along the lines of like acidulated malt that you're using now? Um, it's not an acidulated malt, but some of the principles are the same. Okay. You, know, you, you want a certain chemistry uh, in the mash tub and the louder tub and um, the minerals in the water are one way to get it. Uh, as you know, to make, the classic Pilsner, you need uh, you need soft water. The uh, Pilsen has uh, a water source that goes through a lot of limestone and it picks up calcium in that. And uh, people don't talk about it a ton, but brewers treat their water. 
Um, right. If you want to make the same beer, and you know, every time you got to pay attention to your water chemistry. And if you want to do it in a new brewery, um, you got to pay attention to that kind of thing. And uh, historically, if you weren't brewing in Pilsen um, or in Burton for an ale, you would put some minerals in it, typically calcium. Uh, and you don't put calcium in in its pure chemical form. It comes in as bonded to something like calcium sulfate or calcium chloride. Um, and this is an alternative to that adjustment in your water chemistry. Uh, and this is the, the geeky part about it. What we do is we take some of the wort and it goes through a parallel fermentation um, with uh, not just yeast, um, but uh, basically yogurt bacteria, lactic acid bacteria that give it a very soft sour, um, a, sort of a yogurt sour. Uh, and that change in the pH mimics what happens from the inclusion of calcium um, and you, but it's a, a better process. It also drops out some polyphenols that are rough tastes. They come out of the husks of the malt. Uh, and it actually, by precipitating out uh, some harsher flavors, it's, uh, it means we don't have to filter it as much. So it saves a filtration step. Uh, anytime, you know, you, uh, you do any, you know, any extra thing to the beer, um, you'd rather avoid it. So, uh, we were able to take out a filtration step that helped get the polyphenols out and the polyphenols are like the, you know, the, the tannic things right. like you get them like in tea, uh, that sort of side of the mouth, uh, and it's not bitterness. Some people is, uh, mistake it for that, but it's that tannic yeah. taste. Uh, it's a dry drying finish. Yeah. Yep. Which we don't want that in Boston lager. I, so I understand that there's two conversations, right? There's the one that you can have on shows like this or, you know, with brewers and beer geeks and, and that kind of thing. And then the general consumer and me as a, a, a natural born cynic, um, or developed over time. I see it's something called a like journalist, John. I know that's, you know, it's, uh, it's a good thing. It, it's, it's the old adage, you know, that they teach young journalists. If your mother says she loves you, look into it. Um, which is about <laughs> the most cynical thing that I, I, I learned at 16 when I started in newsrooms, but, um, but I hear smoother, brighter, easier drinking and full disclosure. I had this remastered, uh, with you at a, at a, Times Square bar in New York a couple of weeks ago. And after three perfect pints, pint. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great bar. Um, yes, I is. forgot that it existed. Um, it's a nice respite in, uh, in Times Square from all of the, the Elmo's trying to mug you for money. Um, but I went in skeptical and after three pints of it, it, it does show as smoother. It does present that way. And it is easier drinking from the Boston lager that I've been drinking for the better part of the last 25 years. And I, I was, I was impressed by that. And I know it's a, it's, it's a marketing term and it's something that a, a drinker can experience, but I've seen some of your labs before 
um, and I've seen you run uh, uh, beer specs in real time. Is, is there an actual measurement for smoothness that you can point to? That's a really good question. Um, and nobody's ever asked that. So I'm going to just uh, try to answer it as best I can. A real measurement for smoothness. I mean, the first answer is not per se, but it's it's a it's a cool question, John. Um, how would I, if I had to look at specs, what would I look at? Um, I would look at balance between, um, essentially, I would be looking at the balance between the body and the sweetness of the malt and the spiciness and the bitterness of the hops. Um, so I would look at uh, AE, you know, parent extract. Uh, and real extract, um, which is, you know, adjusted for the fact that the alcohol makes, uh, lightens the beer up, um, though it doesn't affect the amount of extract in there. Um, I might look at uh, the RDF, the real degree of fermentation. I wouldn't want it too high. You know, if I got up to high 70s, I'd uh, be thinking that, you know, if the BUs are over 10, um, I don't have enough of malt body to carry the bitterness of the hops. Um, so if I was just looking at specs and of course they don't pick up a lot of stuff, um, you know, they just, from hops, all those complex hop aromatics, um, yeah. they don't show up, you know, on typical beer your beer analyzer will not give you data about, uh, you know, the, the amount of, of some of those uh, flavors that you really, you want. You can pick them up in a gas chromatograph off of the hops themselves, but they're not in enough concentration in the beer to get it. So you could sort of, you could look at, the specs and say this is probably not going to be a smooth beer but uh so you could show you you'd, you'd see what's not going to be smooth if it's you know a 60 bu uh yeah and you know a low ae and it's fermented dry it's it's not going to be smooth is boston lager 60 bitterness units no it's 30 oh i was going to say that would be extraordinarily high for um for yeah the style. No, no i understand what you're saying yeah 60 you could see that on the specs and go hmm this is this is not going to be smooth i might even have to you know scrape my tongue after this because it's not balanced what, what i noticed about remastered is the hop presence and you didn't change the hop um i know with, with the picking season and everything with the harvest season um but you haven't changed the actual varieties yep. of hops in with this the rematch with this uh specific improvement it was all in the brew house same hops same fields same quantities same addition times etc so it's interesting isn't it nothing changed in the hops but the taste perception of them did. Yes. And that's, and that's what I noticed. Um, and I really enjoyed from it. And it's not, you know, it's not a 60 minute IPA level. 
um, uh, by any means, or, you know, what a lot of drinkers think, but it is there in a very, um, you know, pleasant, uh, floral way. And yep. I, I, I wonder in, you're talking about albums, right? And you're talking about the hisses yep. and the pops on vinyl. And I think in 84, 85, um, there were drinkers who enjoyed the beer and those hisses and pops and those who have been drinking this beer for a long time, you know, bemoan the digital days, you know, they long for the analog kind of thing, but there are whole swaths of drinkers who don't. And does this, does the, the noticeable, uh, hop advancement, hop flavor, um, in the beer, do you think that that's going to help appeal to the 20 something drinkers that are out there right now? Um, you know, I'm kind of loathe to uh, to buy into all this generation mongering. Mm-hmm. Um, I, people have the same taste buds. Well, here I'll make an observation. Okay. Um, that I made mm, thirty years ago, I think, at one of, back when the craft beer convention had two hundred people in it, and I gave a talk on flavor development. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, const- uh, recipe development. And uh, I believe there is a sort of natural line of balance between hops and malt in the beer. Um, and that that natural line reflects uh, the the structure, the nature of the human palate. Um, and you, you kind of want, uh, at each BU level, you need more malt to, to carry it and be perceived as smooth and balanced. And, uh, and I think um, we have for better or for worse, it's just an observation, not a value judgment, um, <clears throat> with the, the popularity of IPAs, um, beers, um, oops. Gotcha. Okay, hang on. I got rid of the call. Okay. Um, my apologies. Where should oh, I no start? Or do you, you no, start? you're fine. Okay, good. Okay. Um, with the big boom of IPAs being uh, becoming the mainstream craft beer, uh, we are somewhat off of that line, um, bent towards hoppiness. And I'm, I wonder, long term, will that line bend back to uh, this fundamental balance where uh, uh, take a typical West Coast IPA where um, there's either more malt body in it um, or uh, the BUs come down. And um, the first sign of that, which is very, you know, which is now the next big fad is, uh, you know, high alcohol, imperial uh, fruit bearing IPAs, you know, pioneered by, um, you know, uh, our friends at New Belgium with, you know, 
Imperial Voodoo Ranger. Yeah. And that's come, bringing that line back. You know, that's, you know, I've, I haven't seen an analysis lately, but 30-ish BUs in, uh, and a lot of malt body in it. So uh, not the West Coast, slightly dry, very bitter IPA. Um, the, the, um, the trend in IPAs is now to a more balanced, albeit, you know, 9% alcohol. Yeah, a more balanced overall flavor profile. I'm mindful of your time, but you opened up like nine threads that I'd love to explore. Um, um, that said, um, I know. Are you guys still the most awarded brewery on the planet? I know that was like a marketing term that yeah, you guys were using I a while that's back. That's right. I still think that's right. Well. We have a lot, I'm almost sure it's right because we have trophies at the brewery that we keep it, you know, that are, I mean, uh, used to be in display cases and then they got full. So medals and trophies, uh, we literally have a pile of medals um, over the years now. So I th I'm pretty sure it's still true. Um, you know, some of it might be, you know, uh, the fact that we've been, you uh, We've been brewing craft beer longer than just about anybody. It's us yeah. in Sierra that are kind of still the OGs. Yeah. I know at like the Great American Beer Festival and World Beer Cup and some of them, they, they're, they're now, because there's so many breweries, they're limiting uh, how many beers a specific brewery, uh, a specific beers a brewery can enter. Yeah, um, they've been doing that for oh, a long time. Do, do you feel, and I know Boston Lager has won uh i know it's on the label with best beer in america consumer preference in 85 86 uh gold in 87 the first year that they started awarding medals consumer preference again uh gold in 90 98 silver in 99 in the bohemian was it bohemian pills i guess yeah it's uh, kind of a yeah weird i mean boston lager does not have a category okay it's so along with say anchor steam which is also a great beer uh California doesn't Common doesn't get uh do they is there a cat I think there's there a California, California Common. Common category? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I I imagine okay. there's gotta be. Um, there wasn't for years. I don't I don't know if I mean name me another, you know, uh a comparable beer to Anchor Steam. Oh sure. There just aren't many. Yeah. No, you know, I'm not seeing I'm just going through the quick list in 2021 for GABF and I don't see uh california common on here which i'm surprised yep. about um well you know, come on ba get it Lager together is a uh you know a 19th century american pilsner which uh is not exactly bohemian and it grew out of you know the bohemian pilsners but it has uh more malt body um and has this decoction mash which almost nobody does um and it's croissant which almost nobody does so to me it's very interesting like you know of, of the, there's some great beers uh that are foundational to uh craft brewing the, the first one of course being new albion right. um which uh 
beautifully simple beer. Uh, Sierra Nevada is the current re- I mean, it was based on New Albion. Um, and Sierra Nevada is a great beer. That's been a great beer, you know, since uh, it, they started making it. Um, and it spawned thousands and thousands of other, you know, pale ales um, because it's fairly straightforward to make. It came out of home brewing and Jack McAuliffe's brewing. And yeah, there's thousands of them. Boston Lager is a really hard beer to make. You know, you've got to do a decoction mash, which requires an extra brew house vessel mm-hmm. to do. You've got to do croisoning, which means you've always got to have a, a next, uh, ver- you know, you've got to be brewing every week. And, you know, there's this ballet of, of, of your batches to make the, to make sure you've got a croisin supply uh, when the beer needs to be croisined um, and it's, it's dry hopped and you, there is no close equivalent to Boston lager, which is kind of, which is interesting. I, I cannot think of another beer that tastes like Boston lager and uses those difficult, uh, very traditional 19th century brewing practices that we still use. So would it show up on the judges table in Denver this year? Do you think Boston lager? Yeah. Um, some years we enter it, some we don't cause there's no, I mean, if you're really good at judging Bohemian Pilsner, Boston lager, it's a great, great beer, but, um, you know, the GABF judging, and we've all been judges, it's yeah. kind of, it's a dog show. You know, yeah. you're judging against uh, a, a description and its conformance to those specifications and descriptions. So you put Boston Lager in with, you know, Bohemian Pilsners, uh, and it's, it doesn't belong. Same as with Anchor Steam. There's no category sure. for Boston Lager, just like there's no category for Anchor Steam. I'm still I'm still shocked by that. That's uh, uh, bring back the California Commons. We need we need more of them. Yeah. Um, all right. Mindful of your time because I know you're running a, yeah, a, a huge corporation. Last question, and hopefully it's an easy one. The the premise of this question is at the beginning of the pandemic, my wife and I started rewatching the television show, The Good Place. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but in the final season, they introduce a concept of a green door where you can walk through a green door and be anywhere, any place, any time that you would like. Um, this is an afterlife show. Uh, but if we had such a door on our living plane of existence and this conversation was ending, and you didn't have a meeting immediately coming up and you could walk through that green door and be in any pub or any brewery anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? Who would you want to be with? And what would you like to be drinking? I would like to be at the green dragon pub in 1783, having a pint of, probably a kind of murky brown ale with Samuel Adams and ask him, uh, you know, the British just surrendered. We're now our own independent country. 
we have a glorious future in front of us now. How do you feel about this moment, Mr. Adams? I like and it. And that's where we are with craft beer. Do you have uh, Do you have hope for the future of, of, oh, yeah. of beer itself? Yeah. An incredible community of creativity, of passion, of pride. I mean, uh, being a craft beer drinker in America today, thanks to thousands of craft brewers, is the best place and time ever since people were making beer in clay pots in Mesopotamia 12,000 years ago. And we happen to be alive and brewing at this moment. Couldn't be better. Same goes for the drinkers. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time and being on the show this week. I appreciate it. John, always fun to talk beer with you. So thank you. This was thank fun. You. Best part of my day, man. <laughs> well, so I hope it gets better from here. Jeez. Let's, uh, <laughs> no, only only where to go, but up. Talking uh, about good beer with good people. John, doesn't get any better. Have you had a remastered Boston lager? If so, tell me about it and tell me what you think. You can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at allaboutbeer.com. Or you can tell me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. That's also how you can get in touch with comments, questions, guest suggestions, and concerns. A reminder, please go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can check out the podcast page, the merch page, and you can read great new content as well as the archives going back to 1979. And don't forget to follow All About Beer on social media at All About Beer. If you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, you can email us at info at allaboutbeer.com for advertising or go to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer and you can throw us a couple of bucks so that we can fund writers and editors and creators. Don't forget, All About Beer podcast channel is now up. You can search and subscribe. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for this show, Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.